Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. And today we want to talk about something that I think is happening more and more in the maternal community, and that is traumatic birth experiences. Mm-hmm. I don't have any statistics to tell you all, but Joanne knows I'm always asking her about, tell me about your kid's birth. Okay, this one was C-section. This one was this one. What happened with this one? So we just want to have a candid conversation about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when people hear stories about others, it kind of makes their experiences feel more normal or Mm -hmm. it's not only me. Why did this happen to me? Because mm-hmm. had so many different fertility and maternal experiences um, that I didn't necessarily hear other people talking about. And mm-hmm. I've always been like, did this only happen to me? You don't hear this often. But mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're, we're calling this traumatic experiences, but maybe it's because of the retrospect of it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I was, um, went through such a trauma that I've been scarred or I probably wouldn't have five kids that I have. I probably wouldn't right, have five right. kids. But I mean, it, when you think about it by definition, they are yeah. traumatic experiences. Right, right. And also too, I recently started following a, a page on Instagram called The Business of Being Born. Mm. I think it's some type of documentary. I haven't there watched it. There is a documentary. Yet. I watched it on Netflix. You did. You I watched did. it. I did. Okay, so I have yet to watch it. Good. But there was a clip on that Instagram page, and it was just like a whole group of OBGYNs stating that, you know, being born now in the 21st century is something completely different than what our forefathers had to go through right and everyone's trauma is definitely different definitely different um so I mean it's good that we have conversations like this because we still know that women are marginalized in healthcare. and then when you throw socioeconomic status when you throw race when you throw zip codes into the mix it gets even more complicated so Joanne let's start talking about your birth. Let's start with number one, your oldest. Number one, number one. So, you know, for me, I, even before we got pregnant, I went and interviewed OBGYNs because Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that the person that I chose aligned with my values and, you know, the thoughts that I had and how I wanted things to go. Um, I wanted that person, you know, to be right, you know, where I wanted them to be in the, in the mindset that I had so that we wouldn't have any issues down the line when I'm six months pregnant and we're going, um, toe to toe because they want something that I don't want. So I wanted that. So I think that was the, one of the best things that I ever did because Mm -hmm. all these experiences that I've had, I've been with the same practice with all of my pregnancies and, um, that helped a lot with Mm my, my birthing experiences. So, with baby number one, so I had a, I was pregnant, had a miscarriage about eight weeks. And that was my very first pregnancy that I knew of. And that was traumatic in itself, even 10 years, well, 13 years down the line now, I still feel that. And I know a lot of women who've had miscarriages, they say the same thing. It's still, you know, you wonder what could have been and why Mm -hmm. it happened. I knew, you know, why, um, the uh, fecal matter 
no, that's not what it's called. It's not fecal matter. The fetus. Mm-mm. I know what you mean, like the fetus itself, the, the, the right, tissue. The fetus, right, the tissue and all that um, that came out, they tested it and it was chromosomal abnormalities. Mm-hmm. I went through labor. What mm-hmm. I now know is labor, like when I was passing all that at home, I didn't know why was I in such pain. I was in grad school at the time. I was driving an hour to grad school. I remember driving from grad school and like I'm hitting the steering wheel like every time because I was having actual contractions and I didn't know why like every few minutes this pain would Mm. come through. But now I know there it was actual contractions I was having because I was about to pass this baby. And, um, you know, when I got home and my husband, he was out of town. So I went through this all by myself and I got home. I took some Tylenol and I pretty much passed out. I think I I passed out. And then when I woke up, it was in my, um, it was on the pad because I was wearing a pad by then because I was bleeding. I was bleeding. And so it was on the pad. And then, so my physicians told me, you know, to put it in a, um, a bag and bring it in. And I brought the baby in. For the baby, for the baby to be tested, and that's when they knew it was chromosomal abnormality. So that was a traumatic experience in itself because I was absolutely afraid during my uh, second pregnancy, which mm-hmm. is my firstborn. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely afraid because I was like, okay, week eight, okay, we're safe. Yeah. I was afraid to fall in love. I was afraid to, um, you know, get attached. I think I didn't relax until 32 weeks into that pregnancy Mm -hmm. because I was so afraid, like, you know, the same thing's going to happen again, you know, Mm -hmm. great. And and I, and this is normal. I've heard several other people now that I've spoken uh, more about this, that I said the same thing, but with him, it was a great pregnancy, um, normal, nothing, no issues, no blood pressure issues, no blood sugar issues. Everything was great. Um, my pregnancies, I always gain a ton of weight. That's just me and how I roll. <clears throat> that's normal for me. And I, I, I know, um, how my body works. So that's, um, it was a pretty good pregnancy. So I think about maybe 38 and a half weeks is when I went into labor. So I went into labor and it was like three o'clock in the morning. I remember we went to the hospital that early, um, not knowing what to expect, so we got to the hospital and um, I was what? Three and a half centimeters dilated. I was three and a half centimeters dilated and they only admit uh, you. How many? Four. Oh, okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They admit you at four. So I was mm-hmm. three centimeters dilated. So they had me walk the halls of the triage area for the maternal. Um, it's like the maternity. I'm not even going to call it a ward. It's a maternity hospital that's attached to um, the hospital that I went to. So it's a whole maternity section, babies, mama, all that. So I walked the halls, the hallways. And then by the time I got back, maybe 45 minutes later, I was past the four centimeters. And then so they admitted me. And so from then on, it was like an 18 hour stretch. I was in labor. I was in labor. I think, (laughs) This was the one, because, you know, I'm new to this. And I think I was five centimeters in and I said, give me the epidural. I can't do it. I, I don't want to do it. I don't, I'm scared. This is going to be too painful because I was contra- having contractions um, and they were painful. 
And so I was like, give me that epidural. So they gave me the epidural and the epidural came with the epidural. They also gave me Pitocin and they gave me the normal dose, I guess, that you would give with Pitocin. And I, for me, and I've had done research on this and I've had other people say the same thing. I think the Pitocin just did not bode well with my baby. And I've since had Pitocin. So I'll go into that as I talk about the rest of my babies. But I think the dosage of Pitocin, the normal dosage was just too much for him. It didn't allow him to naturally have time to relax. I think Pitocin, you know, if no one out there, if you don't know what Pitocin is, it's a medication they use to induce contractions to get things moving along. And so um, with the baby, naturally, when you have contractions, there needs to be a period of rest. And I think there wasn't, the period of rest wasn't long enough with the Pitocin and it put him into distress. So he pooped. Can, can I ask you a question? Sure. The person that, like, you know, you said you've been going to your OB practice. The mm-hmm. person that you were seeing, were they the same person that delivered you? Yeah. So with my practice, there was, there was only one guy at the time and he was there too. I think he was one, he was there upon admission, but he wasn't there. By the time I delivered, he was gone. So what they do is during your pregnancy, your prenatal visits, you see all of the uh, practitioners there, including the midwives. That is awesome. Yeah. So that way you get to know. So I have GYN that I see, like she's the one I see annually, like regularly. But you see all of the other people who would be there at the hospitals um, throughout the whole prenatal um, visits. And you may be able to see them multiple times. So that way, when you get to labor and delivery, you're not like not a person, person yeah. before. You have right. some kind of rapport with them. So, awesome. so I had met um, the person. It was um, one of the people from the practice that was there. So awesome. that was great. With that familiarity, you know, it made you a little bit more comfortable with whatever. Right. Yeah. And so um, with him, so... He had meconium and he uh, released meconium and they knew that because my water had broke and they were checking for, to see how far, far dilated I was. And the gloves came back greenish, blackish colored. And so they knew that there was meconium in there. And then, so they were like, it's not an emergency right now, but, and at that time, like his oxygen, his stats were going up and down. And so it wasn't consistently down for them to say, okay, we need to go in now, but it was just going up and down. And then now we have the meconium. So they were like, it's not an emergency now, but you may want to start thinking about a C-section because by then I was 18 hours and this is my first uh, labor and delivery. Um, you know, they were thinking we may need to go in if things go crazy. And so, 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 so let's talk about that a bit. You mentioned 18 hours in, which you just shared with me before we started this podcast episode. Why is 18 hours so significant? Well, 18, okay. So 18 hours is significant because once your water breaks, you have 24 hours to get this baby out per hospital standards. Mm-hmm. Um, at home births may be different. I'm not sure, <laughs> but per hospital standards, 24 hours infection may start setting in. So that's how long you have. Now my water broke. So 18 hours in was 18 hours since I had stepped foot in the hospital. Mm -hmm. My water broke probably 
two or three hours into the hospital stay because I remember going to use the bathroom mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. remember wiping and it was all slimy and I was like what is this what's my <laughs> urine I didn't even know that's what it was I didn't even know so when they were asking me did your water break I was like I don't know because truthfully y'all I was expecting a gush like you see in the movies and I never, uh-huh. I've never experienced a actual gush at home I think have all my waters broken in the hospital I think they've all broken in the hospital I've never mm-hmm. had water breaking at home I've just gone into labor with contractions I've never had gushing of anything at home and so yeah so that's where that you know the clock is ticking so the clock mm-hmm. is ticking I have um meconium uh in my um, womb because they checked and they found the meconium. And then so, but God spoke to me, y'all. Okay, preach it. I could have waited, but God spoke to me and was like, girl, you better go on ahead and do it now, okay? And that voice was clear, Joanne. That voice was clear because (laughs) I I really, I didn't want a C-section. That wasn't my preference. I know people people just prefer, they just, just, schedule me. I don't even want labor to kick in, just schedule me. That was not my preference. I wanted a natural um, uh, pushing out experience with my birth. And, but I also wanted a healthy baby. And I was of course willing to do a C-section if anything crazy was happening. And then, so when God spoke to me, I was like, going ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. They went in, you know, things start moving fast when they, once they say C-section, like boom, 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 boom. You're like, you can't even keep up. They Mm -hmm. sent my husband, they sent him out, you know, they had to gown him up, get all that together and stuff. So they cut me open and this boy was green all over. Like his nail bed was green, everywhere was green. And they're rushing. They went from, you know, pulling him out to the side trying to get him to breathe because they were like, he's not breathing on his own. And so things just went, you know, crazy from then on. They were like, we don't even have time for you to come and see him. Like, we can't even put him next to you for you to just like see your baby. We're going straight to NICU. So they rushed him to NICU. My husband, (laughs) they were like, dad, you coming? He was, he didn't even say bye to me. He was gone. Okay. Because we were like, (laughs) I mean, we had already spoken about this. I was like, Wherever he goes, one of us is going, okay? Right, you can't like send your We're not, He's not going to be alone at all. Wherever we go, he, you know, he goes, one of us is going. So he was gone and, you know, left me. So I didn't never, I didn't get to see my baby until the next day. And so, you know, I stayed for them to sew me up and do whatever they need to do and make sure that I was good before I can see him. So my husband saw him before I ever got to see him. So he was in NICU. And so let's, let's let's backtrack. Let's backtrack just a bit. Let's talk yeah. about meconium. Uh-huh. I just learned about it a couple minutes before we press record on this episode. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that there's people out there that's like, okay, like you know, what's the big deal with meconium? Why why wasn't he breathing? Why did they have to rush him off so quickly? So uh-huh. let's talk. Let's talk about that and how it's so lethal to right. me. Yeah. So the meconium is very. It's a it's their first poop. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone who's a mom out there who's had that experience or who had a birthing experience, I should say, because there's mothers out there who didn't have birthing experience. Mm-hmm. But anyone who's had the birthing experience um, and has changed the first poop diaper would know, would see, remember that black tarry, um, and I'll link it, say like molasses type texture, mm-hmm. sticky, okay? Mm-hmm. 
So if the baby swallows and inhales that and it goes into their bronchioles, when they exhale, mm -hmm. the tar-like substance does not allow for the bronchioles to open back up. Mm -hmm. And so the breathing, normal breathing that you would do, that can't be done. So right. the longer the baby is exposed to that um, in, in the womb, the more dangerous it could be, they could end up in on a trach. It could be deadly. It could be lethal. So for mm -hmm. me, we know when the when he came out, they were like, "If we had waited any longer, this could have been um, uh, catastrophic. This could have mm -hmm. been worse than it is right now. Well, like he could have mm -hmm. been on a trach. You know, all kinds of stuff. So when he was rushed to NICU, he was he had to be put on oxygen. Um, <clears throat> I think he was on, um, did he give him a feeding tube? I think he was on a nasal mm. tube, but nothing GI wise. It was nasal. And so um, I didn't get to see him until the next day. And for me to see him, I had to be able to, I had to walk. I had to be able to walk. I had to walk and had to fart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to mm -hmm. Those are the two things that will qualify for me to be able to go see him. And I was like, well, uh, listen, the gas thing, I've been doing that all, all <laughs> so yeah, I'm good with that. But so I had to walk the hallways so they could make sure that, you know, I wasn't at risk for anything. Walking, it helps decrease the risks of blood clots and all that. So I did all that. And it wasn't until later in the afternoon, I went, I was able to go and see him and I was able to go and see him and they allowed me to try to feed him. I'm trying to remember. That's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember, did he have the nasal uh, tube in then or not? I can't remember. But I remember, so I was in the hospital for three days. I was able to go and see him um, in the NICU, but I had to start pumping because mm -hmm. breastfeeding was very important to me. I was, I was already graduated from... Um, grad school my uh graduate professor was maternal fetal uh nutrition um maternal infant baby nutrition so you know we've done research now so that was very important for me to breastfeed so I started pumping immediately and if anyone knows that they've pumped from the beginning of um postpartum with no infant near you you're pumping, but there's very minuscule amount. Like that colostrum is small. Like mm -hmm. if the baby was latching on directly, it would be so much easier. But for that colostrum to trickle down into the tube and into the, oh, it was so stressful. I actually called my graduate professor. I was like, I don't see anything. What am I, what am I doing? He was like, just continue, just keep doing it, keep doing it. So I was pumping and it wasn't until I got home, it wasn't until like three, day three and a half that my um, milk, actually first uh, full milk came in. Mm -hmm. And so I remember having to um, rush to the hospital twice a day to bring milk because I wanted him to have that breast milk from the beginning because I knew there were so many benefits in that breast milk that would help with everything that he was um, going through. So day morning, we would go like at 10 in the morning, um, all night long, I'd be pumping, I'd be waking up, like as if he was there, every two hours, I would wake up. And turns mm -hmm. out my kids are every hour, every hour and a half type kids when they're breastfeeding. 
But every two hours I'd wake up and I'd be pumping every two hours. And I'd bring that milk over to the hospital. And while I was there, I would feed him directly. And then I'd go home, pump again throughout the day. And then the afternoons, evenings, we'd go back, same thing. So every day for 14 days, he was in the hospital. And so that was, you know, I think I was on adrenaline. I feel like mm-hmm. I I was on adrenaline. I didn't allow any of it to put me down because if it did, I feel like it would just affect me negatively. And at that mm-hmm. time, my dad was pretty much- you- I was just about, about to bring Yeah, that he up. was going through, yeah, he was about going to bring through that cancer. He was, yeah. um, you know. What kind of cancer was it? It was prostate cancer that had okay. metastasized. I mean, he pretty much, he died a month later after Preston was born. And so, so that was going on. My mom, oh, that lady, she was going through that with my dad. She was on. Um, and this um, is her first, first grandchild, right? She, this was her first for me. Yeah, this was her first. My sister had, yeah. had two by then. Um, this was her first for me. So she, um, what was it called? What is it called? FMLA. She was on FMLA yeah. by my dad because he was in and out of the hospital. We already knew that it was like heading towards the end, but she came. Okay. This lady she came, left him and came. Left somebody, another family member went to stay with him. Cause my dad was adamant. He was like, I want her to have the experience of her mom being there. So she came during labor. She wow. came. I remember she came. Um, my cousin went to go pick her up from the uh, airport and she came directly to the hospital, you know, from the airport and she was there for 14 days. She left before Preston was released from the hospital but she stayed, I'm, I, I, I'm saying 14 days. When is that 14 days that she was here for? She was here probably 10 days. Mm-hmm. Here for 14 days. Because he he was released around the 14-day mark and she was not here. But she came and she was, you know, there with us. We went to, when we're every day, twice a day, going to the hospital back and forth. But she was making sure that she was giving me the support that I need on that and making sure I was eating right. She was cooking, all that stuff. So, you know, that- Yeah, that's the baby of her baby, you know? Right, My, her baby had a baby. It was, it's a traumatic experience, but I wasn't feeling it at that time because I couldn't be in that mode. I couldn't be in the mode of my dad is dying. I couldn't be in the mode of, you know, my baby is, can't breathe on his own and we don't know when he will be able to come home. I couldn't think about those things. You go into this mode of, savior or, 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 you know, mommy mode where it's all about whatever you need to do to save your kid and to be there for your child. And that's what you need to do. And my husband, he was right there throughout so, the whole time being supportive. So you sound like you didn't feel it. When did you start to feel it? I don't think I ever did. I don't think I ever, I ever did. Mm-hmm. I think that I've gone through mental health therapy mm-hmm. since, um, and I remember my therapist telling me, you've never grieved the death of your father. I couldn't grieve. My dad died a month after my baby was born, which was a couple of weeks after he just got out of the hospital. Okay. My dad, so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really grieve because it probably would have affected me. If I broke down, it probably would have affected me. I would have gone into a depression because I was a, a daddy's girl. 
um, I would have gone into a depression. It would have affected, impacted my milk production, the stress, and I couldn't go there. I didn't allow myself to go there. So oh, I grieved. I don't think so. So let me let me ask you this, because I know like a lot of women, I hear stories about, you know, hormone fluctuations mm-hmm. after giving birth. And because of the hormone fluctuations, a lot of women seep into depression, postpartum depression. Yeah. But seeing that like you had that adrenaline, did you ever enter into postpartum depression specifically oh. with Preston? No, I don't think with any of my kids. You no, think that was a strong black woman? I, and you know, that's a problem in itself, that strong black woman thing. But I, I think we are told to be a strong black woman. We are told we are strong. And I, I was in the, I got this and I have to have this because if I don't have this, I don't want to think about what the not having this looks like. Gotcha. I don't want to have that. I, I never, I mean, I cried when my dad died but I never went into ugly cry, let go scream cry. Um, I never cried when Preston was in NICU. I don't think, yeah, I don't think I ever did that. Um, because I couldn't. What you mean? I'm, I'm here like acting like I'm like, I all fix my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what do you mean you couldn't? Like, did you I couldn't it? because I feel like if I did, if I allowed myself to grieve on either end, my dad or Preston, it would have impacted me negatively, I feel like, and I couldn't allow that to happen. I couldn't go into a depression. I couldn't allow myself to be in that mind frame. And thank God my hormones were balanced enough that mm. I wasn't going into a depression. So right. I couldn't allow myself to cry because I felt like if I was crying every day, mm-hmm. that would have caused stress to my body and it would have impacted my milk production. It would have impacted my healing mm-hmm. I just had a section. So I couldn't allow any of that to happen. So I had to stay in control. Gotcha. Gotcha. And wow. that's, that's problematic in itself. I mean, staying in control, yes. But I, I, I will say that I don't feel like with Preston's birth specifically that um, the I held in something that was harmful. Because I feel like if we hold into onto pain or hold, it, it could absolutely impact you. I don't think I did, but it, it could have because, you know, a few years later, I had the H. pylori situation. Mm-hmm. And I highly believe, you know, if you look at the research with H. pylori, it's often contracted when people are young in childhood and it stays dormant. Mm-hmm. And typically, and I've seen this in my practice, when I speak to my patients, there's something traumatic that has occurred that has triggered. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know, it, it could have been so many different things. It, there's so many things that happened in the few years, the couple of years before mm. uh, with my um, H. pylori being triggered. It could have been, wow. who knows? Could have been my dad. It could have been Preston. It could have been something that was administered to me that shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could have been that. 
So there's so many different things. So yeah, I could have, but I, I didn't feel it in that, in that way. So that was baby number one. He was, he was, yeah, he was traumatic. So baby with baby number two, I, I was at a mind frame of what am I going to do to prevent this from happening again? So again, mm-hmm. baby number two, I don't have this, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. I'm in love with my baby. I really don't relax until 32 weeks, y'all. I really do because 32 weeks is usually what they say is really viable. Like Mm -hmm. most likely won't end up in the hospital. They, you know, lungs are not matured yet, but there's things that they can do to help mature, get lungs to, these lungs to mature. Um, So that's my mind frame. So he was, he, and then I knew with him that I was not going to have any kind of medication. I wasn't going to do an epidural. I wasn't going to have any Pitocin. I wasn't going to do, I was going to let everything naturally occur in the hospital. Um, and I tried to labor at home a little bit longer, which I did not with Preston. I tried to labor at home a little bit longer with Bryson. And when I got there, I still was at four. I swore I was further along. I still was at only four centimeters. <laughs> but I was at the point where they admitted me and, but he, his stuff started moving fast. So once they admitted me, he just started like progressing real fast. My water actually broke right before he popped out. Wow. Okay. So he, now him, I remember him when the water burst out, they were like, oh, we see meconium. Mm-hmm. But he was ready to come out, thank God. So he had no... Um, aspiration of meconium and so he was he was a really good um labor um it happened like within four hours of me being in the hospital so that was a pretty fast labor pregnancy went well um in the beginning of the pregnancy no I've always said said each of my kids have a testimony because the beginning of the pregnancy I found out I was pregnant we were out of town I was in dire pain I went to the mm-hmm. hospital, went to the emergency room, and I said, I have a history of miscarriages. I've had, I had had only mis- one miscarriage that I knew of at the time, but I told them I had a history of it. And he looked at everything, um, the doctor is who I'm talking about. And he told me to go home because I was miscarrying. And I was mm-hmm. like, there's nothing you can do. You can't stop it. There's da, 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 da. He was like, no, you just, you can just go home. Mm-hmm. He had the worst bedside manner I feel like he was just like go home and I I've always said I want to go back to DC and show I'm him like this is him <laughs> right? like this is the one you thought was gonna be uh, you know I'll, he told me to go home and miscarry him so that was the only scare that I had with him no let me take that back I had another scare with him where they told me that because I was in a car accident with him Oh wow! I was in a car accident. See, things are coming back. Things are coming back. I was in a car accident with him. Me and my friends, we were coming from my friend's birthday party um, in a car. A young kid hit us and ran. Drunk driver. Um, he How hit, far along were you? Um, I was, I was further along. I was probably seven or eight months and I can't remember. Wow. But I was big bellied. Um, and I remember... I had to go do all these checkups and they were like, we see a hole in his heart. Interesting. That's what they said. They saw a hole in his heart, but girl, my baby was born with nothing in his heart. Thank God. Nothing was in his heart. 
when he was born. So he came out and nothing was wrong with him. Um, but we go through these periods of things being told to us throughout pregnancy that is scary AF, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Scary. And so, and you know, that's information we need to know. And I'm very much in the, I want to be in the no person because I want to know what I need to deal with. So I yeah. do the testing that they get to do. I know people who don't want to do testing because they're like, you know, whatever comes out, I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And I may not, I'm, I was of that mindset too. I'm not planning on doing anything, but I still want to know what I'm dealing with. Right. Wow. I need to know what to prepare for. So that was baby number two. Baby number three. He Which went one fine. Julian, right? Julian? Yep, Julian. He went fine. He had a, g- a great pregnancy as well. But, you know, I was going, by then I was geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> That's another. Join the club. Join the club. <laughs> right. Geriatric pregnancy, because I was over 35. And so I was going and um, I think by then I was just going in normal uh, prenatal time. It wasn't until my last, my fifth one that I just had. That's when they were having me do all this hoopla because I was over 40 or I would have been, I would be 40 when I had him, which Mm. so I turned 40 like 10 days before he was due. Mm -hmm. So they had me doing all this stuff. So we'll talk about that. But with Juju, so I was going in um, normal, nothing was going on. 37 weeks, they were like, girl, he's breached. He's not turning. Yes, he was not turning. And my hope for another VBAC was not looking good. But I hate to do it to y'all. The episode has to pause right here. If you want to find out what happened in my third labor experience, what recommendations were made so that I can increase my chances of a VBAC and not another C-section, tune in next week for part two of Traumatic Birth Experiences, where I also talk about what happened with my fourth and fifth labor experiences. But in the meantime, remember to share this episode and give it five stars and let a friend, mama or not, know about our podcast. Until next week, bye everyone.